Um, I love that there's a cat in the background. Can you guys hear that? Okay, let's pause because I gotta get rid of that damn thing. Hang on. There goes the entire cool part of this podcast. Exactly. <laughs> well, at least it wasn't my kids screaming. That's why I had it on mute. Uh, they were having a fight upstairs. This is a new angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in today. Uh, this will be sort of the first installment of our full special series on the coronavirus crisis, how it's impacting Western Montana, and uh, how people can figure out how to give and get help. Joined today by my trusty economist sidekick, Bryce Ward, along with Susan Haypatrick of United Way of Missoula County, and Grant Keir, Executive Director of the Missoula Economic Partnership. So thanks to all of you for joining. I won't cue you to say hello because you'll all say hello at the same time and uh, and uh, it'll be sort of garbled for the listener. But um, things are changing quickly. We got word uh, yesterday, late afternoon, from Governor Bullock that we're in a shelter-in-place order. We can talk about what that means. Uh, I think today the House of Representatives is talking about or is, is, is looking to vote on the um, what what the media is calling a stimulus package, and we're going to talk about that, whether it's actually a stimulus or something else. And um, yeah, let's get into it. So we're going to kick it over to Bryce for kind of a, a state of play right now. What are we looking at in terms of the disease itself? Cases in Montana are on the rise rather rapidly, uh, on the rise nationally rapidly. We are now uh, the largest, uh, we have the largest number of cases in the world, in the United States. And um, yeah, Bryce, looking at the data, what are you seeing as far as the spread of the disease? Well, we're still on the upward slope uh, of the epidemic curve, uh, although it takes time for the social distancing measures that we're hopefully all engaging in to kick in. So hopefully we, what we're doing and we have been doing for the past several days or weeks uh, will start showing up more in the data in a week or 10 days uh, from now. But right now it's all pretty grim uh, from a pure data perspective. If you were just looking at what was going on right now, you would say, yeah, we're still going up very fast and we're going up on the same trajectory as Italy or Spain or countries which are already ahead of us and have dealt with pretty severe uh, healthcare crises. And so, yeah, that's not great. So that's kind of at the national level and we're seeing it, um, you know, it's not sort of manifesting across the country in the same ways. Uh, places like New York are really hit hard, um, but there's other hot spots um, that are either on the rise or on the decline or stabilizing. It's unclear whether Seattle is, is stabilizing, but um, what do we see at the at the local end? I mean, the number of cases in Missoula, I think, is about four or six at this point. There's um, There appears to be community spread in Gallatin County, maybe in Yellow, uh, Yellowstone County. So what are we seeing within the state of Montana? Uh, so what, were we at 61 cases or something yesterday? I think it's um, actually closer to 80 or 90 at this point. 80 now, yeah. So it's going up very fast uh, is the short version. Um, Gallatin County is the main hotspot, and it's like a lot of other mountain counties where lots of people fly in to go skiing uh those parts of colorado have been hit the hardest in colorado 
It's not surprising that the place in Montana that we're seeing is getting hit the hardest is that same place here. Um, and, you know, it, like I said, it takes a while for us to really get a, a, gra- a, a grip on it. But uh, the good news for Montana is, you know, we are kind of further back on the curve. And hopefully we started engaging in social distancing earlier than some of the other states that have been hit harder. And so hopefully our curve will start flattening out at a much lower level than, you know, someplace like New York. Yeah, I mean, there's reason to be optimistic. Uh, New York Times published an article sort of charting the the, the sort of um, diffusion curves in each state. And Montana had actually one of the most encouraging states. I mean, probably a variety of reasons for that were spread out. Uh, the cities we do have have relatively strong healthcare systems and um, and kind of uh, civically minded populations that um, you know, probably do try to do what's best for the community in general. We're seeing a lot of uh, what feels like positive energy and action here in Missoula, yet a lot of uh, businesses in, in in tremendous amounts of distress. Let's bring Grant into the conversation. I mean, what are you hearing with actually? Let's let's um, before you get into some of the tactical stuff, talk about what you are sort of viewing the role of Missoula Economic Partnership in this uh, current moment. What 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 is your sort of crisis footing here? Yes, yeah, so thank you, Justin. We're really excited to be here today. You know, we see ourselves sort of operating in parallel with uh, United Way of Missoula County and the work that Susan's doing to help people directly on the ground. And we're really focused on a sort of parallel track to help business owners both to understand what they can do to uh, take care of their business as an entity, but a lot of our small business owners are also sort of their own employer and employee. So. We are fundamentally um, serving right now as a sort of coordinator of the Economic Recovery Task Force for Missoula County's disaster response. And that's really just about bringing to get together a roundtable discussion of all of the folks in Missoula who have traditionally worked to support our businesses and our economic development in the community. Uh, it's a large group of people with a lot of skills. And I think because of the willingness and ability of everybody to come together quickly and work in a collaborative way, we're really focused right now on understanding the landscape, hearing from our business owners of what they need from us to survive and get through this, um, but also working with Bryce and others to understand what can we forecast and what can we anticipate so that we can provide the services people need now and anticipate what they meet, might need down the road. And then the last element is really trying to come up with a coordinated uh, communications message so that we are getting the community information as fast as possible about the resources that are available to them and also the resources that are needed so that if folks have the capacity to be helpful right now, they know where they can plug in and do that. Sure. And Susan, sounds like you know, a lot of your work is parallel at the moment. Um, I'm getting notifications from you and press releases from you uh, every day about amazing things that United Way is doing to support the community. Can you talk a little bit about um, yeah, your perspective on this moment and the role of your organization? Sure. Um, it's been uh, It's been interesting to see how our nonprofit sector, which is always on the front lines in good times and bad, uh, how how this has hit our sector and our service and gig economy workers. Um, I, I am thinking this morning, especially of the almost $100,000 that we've distributed over the last 48 hours to those service and gig economy workers in the form of uh, 
grants of up to $400 from our COVID-19 emergency assistance fund. And we had a, a low barrier application at the same time ensuring accountability. You know, people had to prove with some documentation that they were affected by the, by the pandemic. And the stories on those applications uh, would just break your heart. You know, I'm, I'm, I work three service low wage jobs and all my businesses have closed down. Uh, I'm, I'm a single dad and the sole support of my three-year-old son. Uh, I need to buy groceries. And these are the people who, uh, you know, serve our drinks and serve our meals and work us out at the gym and take care of our kids and cut our hair and such an important part of our economy and the ones least likely to have anything to fall back on. So our fund was uh, the first $100,000 is virtually gone. We continue to raise money. Uh, and we'll reopen it. We hope to reopen it within the next 24 to 48 hours. Uh, Missoulians have responded. We raised um, about uh, $175,000 totally and uh, made some grants to nonprofits. I started my conversation today by talking about how they're always on the front lines and unable to meet the needs of people who need them uh, in good times. You know, we just are sort of resource starved in a lot of ways in the face of incredible demands. And the COVID-19 situation is really taxing places like Missoula Aging Services, uh, the drivers of that traditionally help at, for Meals on Wheels are the most vulnerable population. They're mostly elderly. And Missoula Aging has many more requests now from so-called underage people to receive Meals on Wheels. So they've been struggling. And the YWCA Missoula, which helps our most, our poorest and most vulnerable families, including folks fleeing domestic violence, they're needing to extend motel voucher stays. So those are just two examples. I know, I know there are many more. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about, you know, with, with Grant and Susan about, you know, how this is affecting people economically. I mean, people can't, can't, many people can't go to their jobs. And, um, at the same time, and Bryce and I spoke about this in our episode last week, this is a, an interesting crisis in the sense that the things we want the populace to do to prevent the spread of the disease are the same things that are causing the other folks or some of the same folks to not be able to work. So let's talk about this shelter-in-place order that came down from the governor's office. First of all, uh, Bryce, in your understanding, what is shelter-in-place? How is it distinct from social distancing? And why did the governor choose to, to, to take that step? Why is it important to this, to this state to do that right now? So as I was explaining it to my wife last night, for us, it's not actually that different than the life we've already been living. Yeah, it feels very similar. I mean, I sort of feel like I've been sheltering in place, but but um, yeah, how does it? How, why does something like yeah, this matter? I mean, the big, the biggest fundamental differences are the expansion of the mandated closure to for all non non essential businesses, and you know, and then I guess there's some you know, I guess there's a little bit more legal authority to try and keep people from doing the things that we don't want them to do, sure. but. You know, in terms of what you can do is, yeah, you can still go and help your parents if they need help. You can still go for a run if you want to go for a run. 
you can still go to the grocery store or the doctor, uh, the bank. You know, so all of those things are still available to you. It's really, you know, from my perspective, it's just the, uh, you know, instead of just having restaurants and schools be closed, uh, it's all non-essential businesses. And you know, just to be clear, uh, essential businesses comprise about seventy-five percent of the economy. Now, there's some things which are essential, which are going to be scaled back, like restaurants, but. You know, the, the set of things that are, you know, explicitly non-essential is I did a rough calculation this morning and, uh, you know, it amounts to about 22% of private sector employment. Now, I, the effects will be larger than that because, like I said, restaurants and, you know, various other hospitality services are technically allowed to be open. Um, they are still in the essential sector, but we know that they're, they're going to be scaled back. And so one of the things that's difficult, well, there's a lot of difficult components. One of the main difficulties, particularly in terms of the business community, but also in terms of the average citizen is this, this question of how long will it last? You know, the president yesterday or the day before says, hey, we're going to be reopened for Easter. There's a, <laughs> there's a, a lot of skepticism about that notion, but people want a, uh, people want a finish line. Uh, even even people that are progressive um, with the social distancing and, and shelter in place mandates are saying, hey, if we all do this for 14 days, uh, we'll get through it. It seems less predictable than that. These dynamics, we, we, we just don't know. Is that a fair assessment, Bryce? We just don't know how long this thing will last? Yeah. I mean, we, you know, it's, it's in jargon terms, it's not time dependent, it's state dependent, right? That is the conditions of the world will tell us when we get to go back to some amount of freedom. And that's worth noting, when we get to go back to freedom, it will not, we will not just go immediately back to, uh, you know, just everything being quote, the way it was two weeks ago. Uh, we've got many months until, you know, we'll reach the state of the world in which, Everybody gets to go out freely again, but in terms of you know, right now we're the the phrase I like, and I'm going to forget. I forgot to look up the guy who wrote this, but uh, he calls it the hammer and the dance. And right now we're in the hammer stage. We need to suppress the virus in order to maintain the capacity of the healthcare system and not have it all be overrun. And so hopefully we just have to suppress for not too long, um, because look, this isn't fun. Nobody's having a lot of fun. Right now, sitting at home, uh, not being able to go about their lives, particularly if you have kids, uh, you know, you're hearing a lot of, I hate the coronavirus. Um, and, uh, but, you know, we've got to do this now to suppress, and then hopefully we can get the conditions in place to do what's called the dance. And the dance is containment, right? So once we've suppressed the, the number of new cases to a very low level, we can get to the point where we can quickly identify new cases. We can isolate them. Uh, we can ramp up uh, how we go out into public in terms of the safety measures that are in place so that we can you know, keep those places uh, clean and safe. And so hopefully we do the things that we need to do to ramp up our containment measures, you know, the dance measures, so that we can at least start going back to you know, more things being open, more things being at least, you know, you having options to go places. Um, but, you know, until we get to a vaccine or full herd immunity, we're kind of in a, we're going to be in a weird state for probably quite a while. Indeed. Grant, what are you seeing on the ground as far as this sort of 
business manifestation of this hammer and dance dynamic that Grant that um, Bryce is talking about? Yeah, I think um, a couple of things. One, obviously, we're hearing from so many people. I think people were just literally shocked at how fast this has hit them. And I think the the pace at which some of these shutdowns have impacted their business. And despite sort of news of this sort of virus creeping across the world, I think few people were prepared for what this would look and feel like here in Missoula, Montana and across our county um, and how quickly it would change our everyday lives. And um, I think people are, are struggling right now. You know, Susan talked about the fact that a lot of these folks on the front line were struggling already. And a lot of our small businesses are folks that operate on thin margins. And these are, there's a reason a lot of these businesses that are in retail and uh, arts and entertainment and tourism industries are considered lifestyle businesses. They operate on pretty thin margins and they run a pretty tight cash flow and they really depend on that ongoing business. And especially for some of them business that's really just starting to ramp up at this part of the year for us in Missoula. So um, we're hearing a lot of um, anxiety and stress around what this means for them, a lot of uncertainty. And I think mostly people are just wondering, are they going to get the help they need as fast as they need it? And where is it going to come from? And I think um, what's encouraging right now is I think it, the Congress has responded and the federal government, which is, is frankly probably the only entity that can operate at a scale appropriate to address the challenges we're facing, has responded remarkably fast and at least in these initial assessments of what's coming out of the federal government, um, has really responded to a lot of the concerns we've been hearing in terms of this being a pretty, pretty uh, package of relief that can be on the ground pretty immediately. It's going to directly benefit individuals, employees, and employers. Um, and that's encouraging. And I, I, you know, I don't know all of the calculus that went into the governor's decisions, but I suspect that part of what allowed our communities to go to a shelter in place, which is so needed to control the virus, is a little more confidence that some help is on the way. Yeah. And this, let's just, we'll, we'll get to the the relief package in, in a few moments, but I just want to draw out for a second. You know, you talked about Grant how this, you know, it, it affects some businesses more rapidly than they expected. I mean, some businesses were sort of forced to shut down immediately. Others, the effects are going to be longer and less clear. Others, you know, might not understand the effects right now. I mean, I, I think of my, I count myself as, as as super fortunate in the sense that I have a job that's relatively easy to do from home. But how this affects the university system in the long run is particularly the Montana university system is, is a big open question. You know, in class this week, uh, my introduction to business class, we had Todd Frank from the trailhead on. And for him, several weeks ago, this, his response to the virus started as a uh, concern for his employees. He had two employees that uh, in their mall store that fall into the category of high risk. And his immediate thought was, wow, this mall is really crowded. I've got two employees that are high risk for um, contracting this disease. And I got to shut my store down because of protecting my employees. And so that went from that mindset of being kind of looking out for his employees and the health of his team to, wow, I got to do whatever I can to keep what little cash I have to keep this thing solvent in time, you know, and, and hang on in time for this this relief package to come. I assume that Susan, you are seeing this kind of 
at, at the level of individual families as well. They are, they're maybe their sources of income have dried up, disappeared completely, and they're trying to figure out, like, how on earth am I going to make it until help arrives, if help arrives? Absolutely. It is It is a really tough time if for, you know, those people who are, so many of them, tip-dependent. Um, they may still be collecting some wages, and but... You know, you, on a good night at a good local restaurant, you can make well over $100 in tips and to lose that sort of income. And even, you know, Uber drivers, Lyft drivers. Yeah, there's, uh, I know that there is an undercurrent of panic. And uh, I, I wish I had better answers than we hope to reopen our assistance fund. I hear people email me telling me they've, tried to file for unemployment, but they just can't get through on, on, on these websites. I, I mean, I, by nature, am optimistic, and I feel like we are, you know, hashtag Missoula strong, but uh, this is going to profoundly alter the landscape for people and organizations. Yeah, let's talk about that relief package. So the Congress, I don't know the exact dates of, of what passed. I mean, one of the things that you see in the media is it's being called a stimulus package. And Bryce, I'll kick it to you because you know, your your comment about that was, hey, this is not stimulus, particularly not in the traditional and economic sense. This is kind of disaster relief. We're not necessarily trying to stimulate the economy. We're trying to allow it to be paused um, for as long as it takes and, and help people survive, help people and businesses survive that pause. Is that, is that a correct framing in your view? Yeah. I mean, right now we're not trying to put money in people's pockets so that they can go out and spend money that they wouldn't have otherwise spent. Um, we're trying to put money into people's pockets to basically pay them to stay home. Uh, and we're giving money to businesses to pay them to basically stay alive without actually bringing in as much money as they would normally do. And so it's, you know, this might be pedantic economics jargon watching, but this is, this is more in the lines of this is a disaster relief bill, kind of like what you would put in place uh, after a hurricane or an earthquake. Um, it's really just about helping people survive uh, the, the, the event and so that, you know, when the event is over, uh, we get back to normal as quickly as possible. And so, you know, stimulus is more like, okay, we've had a, a contraction in demand and it's about fundamentally trying to boost demand. And there will probably be a need for stimulus at the end of this. But this right now is more of, you know, it's, it's disaster aid, it's survival. And so one of the things we talked about last week, Bryce, was, you know, in a crisis, you don't want to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. you got to move fast. You might, you will make mistakes, uh, but you got to get uh, help on the way quickly. So let's break down kind of what are the main components here of, of this disaster relief package. We've got some form of payment to individuals. Uh, if they qualify, uh, we've got some some money to support businesses of a variety of sizes. You've got some discretionary funds, other forms of support. Um, Grant, I kick it to you. Like based on what you've seen of the disaster package, what are some of the programs that you're you're most excited about? Yeah, I mean, you know, taking this back to the example of Todd Frank, and I think this is true for so many employers. I think. Um, 
the question in our mind, and I'm sure this is true for Susan, is like, who is getting help and how are they getting help? And for employers, it's, are my people going to be okay? And I think a lot of employers have struggled to know, are my people better off if, if, I'm, if I can do it to keep them on payroll or are they better off if they're not on my payroll and they can qualify for unemployment? So, you know, I see the sort of federal response very much right now in sort of five key elements. There are those direct payments to individuals um, just trying to get cash in people's pocket to, to survive. Um, those are going to help folks who are making any up to $100,000. They really start to taper off after you've, if you're making $75,000 to $100,000 a year. But folks are going to get, uh, right now, it's our understanding, a $1,200 check in the mail sometimes in the next three weeks. And they'll get 500 additional dollars if they have for every child. Um, there's a, an increase in the unemployment benefits, which is really key, and an expansion of who can qualify. So for a lot of those individual employers and gig workers that we see in Missoula, that will be helpful to them to have some relief quickly. And, and clearly, a lot of folks are struggling to even access that right now. And, and the hope is that that will, will be able to add some additional staff at a federal level to accommodate the demands for those services. And that's also that expansion of service providers in these areas is also included in the package. Um, and then, you know, another place that's been expanded that has maybe gotten a little less attention is a, a real radical change to our Family Medical Leave Act mm -hmm. um, and really allowing employers and, and, and ensuring that employers provide much more flexible leave related to the COVID response and recognize that um, not only are people sick, but people are really struggling with the challenges of having adequate childcare to do their jobs, even if they can work at home. Um, and that's interesting because it's actually, uh, you know, one would perceive that as a pretty big burden to employers, but the way that it's set up, there's a, a tax credit, a refundable tax credit to those employers. So at the end of this, uh, most employers will be able to get whatever benefits they've provided to their employees back through the federal government. And then uh, the last and probably most significant thing for businesses is um, this expanded uh, and, and really expedited low interest loan program that they've rolled out through the Small Business Administration. And those offer a very low term rate. They offer, um, they're, they're really streamlined by being delivered in many cases through our local banks. So folks who have a relationship with a bank or already an existing loan program, they can go into their local bankers and talk about how to qualify. And I think one of the things that's really key about that is there's some opportunity for loan forgiveness there for folks who have um, basically kept their employees on payroll and have up to about eight weeks of impact where they're seeing they're maintaining their costs as a small business, but they are not recuperating income because there's been some change to their contracts or business as a part of the disruption. A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. This is University of Montana President Seth Bodner, and you're listening to A New Angle. I mean, let's ask you to editorialize a little bit. I mean, what are, what's your what's your take on this this package? I mean, do you think it's what's it missing? What's it doing well? What do you, yeah? What do you what's your what's your initial take? Uh, my initial take is that I'm pretty surprised at the comprehensive nature of all of these different programs. I'm incredibly impressed with how fast Congress has been able to respond. And I think the biggest fear we were hearing from a lot of businesses, as well as individuals, is this relief going to come fast enough? And obviously, yeah. the jury's out. A lot of this stuff has just come together this week. 
but it's clear that the intent is to move really quickly. And for our federal government to operate this broadly with a bipartisan package and to sort of uh, try to provide relief in such a comprehensive manner, I think is, is to me impressive. And I, I am confident that a lot of people will see some relief with what's coming out of this package. Uh, the question is, are we going to be able to do enough? And we're certainly going to try locally to make sure people are aware of what's available to them in terms of help. Yeah, I think that's that's key. I mean, I would agree with your sentiment about the speed and the spirit in which this package came together. Of course, there's there's debate within it, but relatively fast for such a major piece of legislation. I think there's open questions as to whether the execution can be pulled off on both sides. I mean, the, the federal government, whether it has the, the sort of capacity to execute on some of these programs, but a question for you, Grant, and this, this came up kind of in my conversation with, with Todd the other day is, you know, I asked him, hey, are you paying attention to the news to sort of see what, um, you know, what sort of relief might be out there for you? And his response was, dude, I'm trying, but like just to do what I need to do to keep this his business afloat um, and help his people is kind of consuming all of his bandwidth. So that, that appears to me to be a critical role for MEP here is, is how do you kind of help businesses figure out how to take advantage of what's in the package? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that's really the, I think there's an onus on us to be a central coordinator of so many terrific assets in our community. You know, we have, um, whether it's the downtown Missoula partnership, the Missoula chamber, uh, Destination Missoula, who works closely with a lot of our uh, entertainment and tourism groups. Um, there's no way that any one organization in our community could provide an adequate distribution of information to everybody who needs it. And so really what we've tried to do in coordination with the county disaster relief and emergency services teams is understand how do we bring everybody together to use the networks that we all have to try to get information out as possible, as fast as possible. And I think um, we live in a day and age where it's going to require every single stream of communications we have. You know, we're redeveloping our website right now so that we have a central point. We're working on podcasts like this so that we can get information out who pe for people who like to listen to things. I know um, the team at Accelerate Montana is doing some live Facebook posts. And so we will, you know, this is going to take a community effort to get the information out. But I also think that... Um, a lot of folks are picking up the phone right now to people they know to say, this help is available. You need to go out and try to get it. And I think we'll continue to do that. And, and with the help of a lot of partners, we'll try to get information to people as quickly as we can. Yeah. Sure. Bryce, it looks like you had a, a kind of a, a thought on, on this package as well. I just wanted to follow up on what Grant was saying right there. And, you know, the federal government has made it rain, so to speak. And, you know, I mean, obviously the details matter, but on a per capita basis, you know, they've basically provided roughly $900 million to Missoula County. Uh, and, you know, our job is to try and figure out who needs that money and to get it to them. And obviously, MEP and the United Way and all the organizations are doing everything they can. But it's very important that everybody be a part of that process. And that entails asking people how they're doing and what they need, and then what they are aware of and what they can help with because we need to try and help coordinate all of that information flow. And you brought it up yourself. You said you ask uh, your friend, you know, are you paying attention? And okay. He said, well, I'm trying, but not really. And so now to the extent that you learn something that might be helpful, 
put that back in front of them. And then, you know, on, at, at a larger level, at the community level, you know, one of the things that I'm working on is trying to come up with kind of simple illustrative case studies that we can kind of put out so that people can say, okay, I'm like this person. What's available for me? Because everybody, every situation is unique, but there's a lot of support in this package. There's a lot of support that's available. We got to make sure that people are, you know, able to kind of access that route. And, you know, that requires not just a podcast or a news release. It requires a lot of people every day asking, uh, do you need something and are you aware of X, Y, and Z? So we got to get that information flowing as, as robustly as we can. Indeed. And that's particularly challenging in this time of social distancing and shelter in place. These networks are going to be increasingly important. Susan, what's your perspective on this? Um, well, just reading portions of the bill, I mean, it's like a thousand pages, so I'm not going to pretend I read the whole thing. But some of the programs that Grant mentioned are indeed applicable to nonprofits, including local nonprofits, um, the emergency small business loans, the economic injury disaster loans. Um, it's hard for people who are, are already leveraged to think about taking on more debt, but there is some forgiveness, loan forgiveness. If you are, I think it's something like if you're an, an employer with less than 500 full, or full and part-time employees and you're maintaining employment, until June 30, you'd be eligible for loan forgiveness, essentially converting the loan into a grant. So that's somewhat encouraging. Um, and then just in terms of our sector, raising the gap uh, or the cap, excuse me, on itemized deductions. Uh, so a bit of a charitable giving incentive and some uh, payroll tax uh, forgiveness or something like that when certain conditions are met, like if you demonstrate a 50% drop in revenue or a revenue drop of at least 50% in the first quarter of 2020 versus the first quarter of 2019, there's some um, relief there. But just to underscore your point about Bryce's point about communication, um, it's so important in these, it's always important, but just uh, really reaching out in every possible way to every possible organization and person and referring them to credible sources that are doing the analysis of the bill. And in, in Montana, we are so fortunate to have a robust nonprofit association, mtnonprofit.org, the Montana Nonprofit Association, locally, the Missoula Nonprofit Center, um, just disseminating information and uh, trying to do the equivalent of what Grant's doing in the for-profits. Yeah, let's talk about that nonprofit sector for a second here, Susan. As you're laying that out there, it sort of occurs to me that this is a time where, you know, you might have an influx of, of people wanting to help, uh, people with the means. Um, and then on the other hand, some of your your philanthropic sources have had to have dried up. I mean, in a time of uncertainty, yeah, people get a little more hesitant to, to give, even if they can give on the margin. Um, what are you seeing in terms of your organization? What are you seeing in terms of other nonprofits or, or hearing in terms of other pro nonprofits in the community? So I think a lot of our local philanthropists are uh, taking a wait and see attitude. Uh, our major foundations are discussing an appropriate response. I think sometimes the natural instinct among major funders 
is to both respond immediately and then to wait and see about longer term needs. And we know that this pandemic is going to dramatically alter uh, our community. I would say also the, the harsh truth is that if your nonprofit was not strong in the good times, it is unlikely to survive this epidemic. I, I, it uh, breaks my heart to say it, but it is, I think, the truth. Um, and then just supporting organizations that not only are on the front lines right now, but I'm thinking about the organizations that aren't necessarily on the front lines. Uh, environmental organizations, our arts organizations. I know that this bill that just passed uh, Congress came in for some uh, battering from some sectors of the populace because there's $25 million in it for the National Endowment of the Arts or Humanities or some. There's, there's a big chunk of change in there, um, at least big on the surface for arts organizations. But honestly, I think that that is smart because we don't want to uh, gut the fabric of our communities and the really amazing services that and, and programs that arts organizations provide just because um, they're not, you know, distributing food or handing out money right now. So I guess um, the, the forecast is unpredictable for our sector. But uh, I would advise people who are in a position to do so to um, really think how they how they can help shore up our nonprofit sector because we are relied upon to do so much in good times and bad. Let's talk about that specifically, Susan. If somebody does have the means, both in terms of uh, money and time, um, and they want to help, what what can they do? Where would you direct them? Well, it's not a United Way commercial, but we do have the largest fund, I think, available in the county right now to assist displaced service workers, gig economy workers, people with limited language, English language uh, capability, people without health care or access to health care. So I, I am encouraging donations at MissoulaUnitedWay.org um, so that we can reopen that fund. And one of the things that... Um, our international affiliate, United Way Worldwide, of which we are a proud member, advises that in times of crisis, it is okay to suspend business as usual. So ordinarily, we would require extensive documentation, practic uh, probably an in-person visit. But for purposes of we really uh, uh, deliberately made it low barrier. People have to demonstrate with some documentation that they worked for a business or organization that is either closed or that they've been laid off. Um, but they also can just tell their, they, they also, in addition, can just tell their story. Um, and as I said, there are hundreds of heartbreaking stories. So we expect to, within the next 48 hours, actually issue checks of up to $400. And I think that that is uh, a good investment. We have a you know, process in place. People are volunteering to screen those applications, read those applications, make calls to those people. Um, that's one way to help. You know, we cannot stop people from making masks in Missoula. It's not necessarily a best practice. It's not necessarily completely recommended because it might give the impression that it's okay to be out and about if, as long as I'm wearing a fabric mask. But uh, 
it might be something that uh, people can use in for healthcare white workers can use in sort of non-emergency, non-critical situations. So we are collecting masks at United Way of Missoula County in a bin on our front porch at 412 West Alter. The good folks at Missoula Textiles have volunteered to launder those. And then we will be making them available to people who, who want them. Sure. Those are two quick ways I can help. And of course, supporting the Missoula Food Bank, the Pavarello Center, um, their populations have been profoundly affected. Yeah, speaking of the mask thing, it, it, it makes me think about, I think it's called the Defense Authorization Act, and business is basically adapting um, what they do. If it's shifting their manufacturing to, like a distillery shifting its manufacturing to hand sanitizer is kind of the classic example, but but other businesses shifting what they do to respond to the crisis. Grant, are you seeing any of that in, in the Missoula economy? Yeah, in fact, uh, one of the most heartening and um, maybe uplifting endeavors that we've been involved in at MEP this past week, uh, I think there's a lot of examples of this. And, I, and what I'd like to do is sort of frame this example in what I think is a really important thing to bear in mind and maybe a distinction between the for-profit and non-profit world and, and maybe stepping even further back to what Bryce had said before about reaching out to everybody to see what they need. I think the for-profit or the nonprofit world, especially having worked in it for so long, is really accustomed to the notion of help and how you connect people who can help with those who need it and trying to solve problems. I think the for-profit world culture and where um, there's a lot of stigma around failure and asking for help. And I think one thing we need to be really thoughtful about in, in this sort of new age and certainly in the midst of this crisis is recognizing that well, one of us, every human being on earth is going to need some form of help through this process. And more than likely, every single one of us has some capacity to help. Uh, and I think if we can be really mindful of that and encourage people to um, explicitly say what they help, even if they're supposed to come from a position of strength, um, we're going to move much quicker. And I think a great example of that is a text that I got from Community uh, Medical Center here in Missoula about a week ago saying, we are worried we're going to run out of our test media here within the next week to 10 days. And we're really desperate to find some new sources for this. Can you guys give us a hand trying to find someone in town who might be able to produce this? We were able to connect them with a lab, Rocky Mountain Biologicals here in Missoula. And over the course of the last seven or eight days, um, the the lab at Community has been going back and forth with the Mayo Clinic. Mayo Clinic got a recipe for this media to the lab. They gave it to this uh, by uh, Rocky Mountain Biologicals team. They were able to recognize that they had most of the ingredients in-house and find the remaining ingredients within a couple of days uh, delivery time to Missoula. Uh, they are, are now able to develop and deliver a product that the hospitals need desperately um, within a day of them running out of this product. And that's a, a product they never produced before in a market they had never considered being in. So, and I, you know, what was inspiring about this is the team at Rocky Mountain Biologicals just said, we want to do anything we can to help. Let us know what we can do um, and figure out the rest of the details later and they just responded so quickly and so thoughtfully and got way out ahead of this and that was really inspiring and i think a lot of businesses are looking at ways to 
manage their capacity to do that right now. And I think that's a really exciting way for people to realize that there's some opportunity in this, not to just to be helpful, but perhaps even some, some opportunities to change and grow their businesses. Yeah, I think that's one thing that a crisis often draws out is um, innovation. I mean, it, it, it places a bunch of constraints on us. It forces us to change rapidly. And people that might not ordinarily have thought that change was possible or something that they were individually capable of are being forced to do it. Now, for, for kind of grim reasons here, but uh, in ways that, that could kind of transform uh, their conception of how they add value to, to customers, to the community, um, et cetera. Uh, Bryce, we're kind of getting to the end of our time here, but I wanted to just sort of allow you to comment on one notion about trade-offs here. I mean, there's people that say, hey, you know, the, uh, well, the, the sort of pithy political, I think, um, phrase that the president used was we don't want the, the cure to be more expensive than the disease or something like that. I don't necessarily want to go there, but, um, Talk about the size of this relief bill. I mean, there's people that say, whoa, this is more money than the federal government has ever spent in one uh, shot before. There's others that say it's not enough. There's others that say it's just the beginning. Uh, frame that in terms of the, you know, the size of the stimulus, um, what we can expect in the future, and why it's important to uh, spend this money now. Um, so it's probably not going to be enough. Um, hopefully it is, but uh, most of this stuff runs out in June. And so to the extent that there is still a hangover that's likely to last longer than that, we're probably going to have to come go back to the well. Uh, so why do we need to do this? Why shouldn't we just basically let the disease run its course and get over this pretty quickly is – the short version is, is if we let the disease go, if we don't shut everything down and then pay people to stay at home – um, then we still destroy the economy and we just end up with a lot more people dead. Uh, and the, because, you know, the, 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 there's kind of an assumption that lurks in a lot of these discussions, which is that the alternative to what we're doing is business as usual, but business as usual is not possible in a pandemic. Uh, you know, if you, you know, if you take the worst case projections of what we would do, if we just did nothing to try and suppress the disease, you know, we would have by the summer tens of millions of people sick all at the same time uh, and, you know, millions of people likely to require hospitalization uh, and hundreds of thousands of people dying. And in that, in that world, the economy isn't functioning either. And so what we have to really think about is, OK, well, what are we trying to do? You know, so if that's the alternative uh, where we're spending the money now to try and a avoid that damage and just the health loss alone. You know, the loss of life is worth about $8 trillion, according to one paper that came out yesterday. Mm -hmm. So it's worth a lot just to save lives. But then you add in all the other benefits that you get and the fact that uh, the economy is going to shut down in either case. And the money is basically to say, well, look, we're going to save all those lives. We're going to preserve that capacity. And hopefully by preserving that capacity, by allowing businesses to kind of continue to pay their workers, uh, we can get their loans forgiven to allow households not to go bankrupt and you know, end up having to leave their houses during the crisis, um, and you know, and, and basically wreck their balance sheets for for years on end. Uh, hopefully, we can preserve that capacity, and then once we get past the health crisis, we can quickly get ourselves back to normal. And you know, there's the effects of the pandemic are likely to last for a long time. Uh, you look at pandemics across 500 years. 
the economic slowdown associated with them lasts for about 40 years. Mm. Um, so hopefully by containing it, by dealing with the pain now, we can hopefully not have an economic slowdown that lasts, you know, at least in some marginal sense for 40 years. Uh, and we can grow more quickly coming out of it because we've done a better job of doing this in a, quote, ordered fashion uh, where we've preserved capacity and we've allowed people to, once this we get past this, to kind of more quickly get things back to normal. And, you know, there's evidence from the 1918 pandemic that communities that engaged in more stringent social distancing earlier recovered more quickly and and at a, at a stronger level. So you know, that's what we're trying to do. That's what we're spending this money on. It is a lot of money, but you know we don't really have a choice at this point. The pandemic is here. This is a big time national nat- natural disaster, um, and you know hopefully we can maintain the social solidarity necessary to kind of be like, look, the economy isn't isn't the thing that we worship. What we care about is humans thriving. And for humans to thrive, it's important that our society function in a way, in a level where we're all in this together and we understand that there's sacrifice and we're doing what we can to kind of help mitigate that sacrifice in order to preserve life. Um, I think Bill Gates said this this week, um, we can mitigate economic problems. We can't bring people who are dead back to life. And that's kind of you know, what's driving a lot of what we're trying to do is we're going to try and put life on the pedestal and we're going to try and save as much life. And we're going to take advantage of really low interest rates to try and uh, make sure that our economy stays healthy uh, over the long term. Susan, your perspective on some of these trade-offs that Bryce just enumerated. I, I it's a, Bryce is a hard act to follow because he really, really hit the nail on the head right there um, and prompts me to think about the opportunity that we have as, you know, as, as Missoulians, as Americans to be what I heard, um, I think, uh, Chris Cuomo on CNN call Americans rather than Americans. Mm-hmm. And uh, just that appeal to our, the better angels of our nature. Um, one thing that uh, I just was thinking about in the course of this conversation about what people can do because we do tend to feel so powerless in the face of some un- this unprecedented disaster. But in terms of individuals wanting to help, uh, just a couple of thoughts. One, trust the nonprofits that you have a relationship with now um, and support them. Um, I think that giving with a minimum of strict restrictions helps organizations now uh, without, you know, general support to them. And then on a, on a positive note, uh, support, I, I mentioned that if you didn't survive in the good times, you weren't going to make it in the bad times. I think we will see some mergers and collaborations, uh, but particularly some mergers as a result of, of this. And so support that kind of creative thinking. And then this could be an opportunity to, you know, I always say I'm not an optimist or a pessimist. I'm a possibilist, but it might be possible that um, we will realize as a society uh, the value of some of the professions most affected by the pandemic. We might start paying our teachers and our child care workers and our health care workers more equitably. And I think that would be something positive that would result in the long term from this. 
Well, that's how we're going to close this thing with something positive. Bryce, I really liked the phrase you use, humans thriving. So let's start with Grant. What is something you've done in the last uh, 24 hours or week or whatever? What is something you've done recently to, to sort of embody human thriving? What are you excited about? Yeah, yesterday um, I just had a, a wonderful lunchtime that I took advantage of being someone who's working from home with a child who's not in school and uh, packed up a couple of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and walked up Mount Jumbo with my daughter and we had a picnic lunch and we just talked about what this all meant to her and how we were going to get through it and what it was reasonable and fair to be afraid of and what we didn't need to be afraid of. And I think um, this, what this pandemic is doing is creating some opportunities to really cherish those moments you have with your family and your friends and to create those um, really important conversations that you sometimes don't get to otherwise. So that was just a, a highlight of my week and, uh, and a real silver lining in all of this. Bryce, how about you? Uh, so uh, also as part of my uh, new role as an elementary school teacher, and uh, this is probably a little bit nerdy, uh, but I will tell the whole story so it, it makes sense. But uh, for me, one of the highlights of this week was filling out the census form. So if anywhere listeners, yeah, we did the same thing there, here. Yep. Uh, I, but what I did is I brought the whole family together. And as part of social studies time, we filled in our census, but then I pulled up uh, ancestry.com and I went to a hundred years ago and showed them their ancestors okay. on the census form. And it was just a nice little chance to share with my family, my family's history, including my great, my grandmother, their great grandmother who was born during the Spanish flu. Mm. And I have no idea why that made me emotional. I do. I mean, that's real. It brings it, uh, it brings it home at the level of the family in a way that's super visceral. Thank you for that story, Bryce. Um, Susan, how about you? What, what's made you thrive? Once again, I'm never following Bryce again. Um, <laughs> that was that was awesome, and I love that connection between the generations. And I also love the plug for the census because so much is riding on that and. When you get those forms in the mail or you, however you fill out your census, do it. We, our community is depending on you. Um, so I've been getting outside every day and I also love to cook. So it's not like I'm cooking like a doomsday prepper, but I have made an awful lot of food, which is interesting since there's only me. Um, the thing that has really lifted me up this week is my colleagues on the United Way staff. And I'm going to get emotional. I mean, these are people who give their all for their community and our organization and me every single day. And I think they're like a lot of other nonprofit workers uh, everywhere, that they could be doing something for a lot more money somewhere else. And yet they are choosing to work 10 and 12 hour days from home to respond to community needs. And I've been doing whatever I can to um, uplift them, support them, tell them stories about my various work from home disasters, like um, almost setting my refrigerator on fire. Anything I can do to support my team has been very energizing. Yeah. And speaking of supporting the team, and I, I, I can't top any of those stories, but um, I can just say that uh, from the point of view of a college professor, 
interacting with students. We started Monday with remote instruction, students back from spring break. And I was just um, super inspired by the by the energy the students brought to the classroom, the virtual classroom, and their uh, grace in adapting to this. I mean, from the students' perspective, students like structure, they like rules, they like to know where the goalpost is, and, and all that has changed. And for most of them, as, as young people, they are um, sort of trying to find their way in this chaotic time like we are. And their response to this um, initially has been been really inspiring. So I, I count myself as privileged to be uh, in a job where I can interact with that and be inspired by that um, by that generation, but also feel a sense of responsibility to do well by them. You know, this is going to be a moment that that uh, changes all of our lives, and those folks have much more life in front of them and much more opportunity to be a big part of the solution. So that was particularly inspiring for me this week. Anyway. Really want to thank the three of you for for joining in on this conversation. I think it's an important way that we can uh, add some value to the community. Any, uh, I don't see any hands up here, virtual hands up. So I'm just going to bring this thing to a close. Uh, we're going to be uh, bringing you this series regularly. We're sort of working out the intervals on which we can uh, produce it. But our idea is to provide value, to figure out um, ways where you can give and get help if you need it. And we also want to want this to be a, a dialogue. So engage with us. Um, send me email. Um, engage with us on our social media platforms. Get in touch with Missoula Economic Partnership. Get in touch with the United Way of Missoula County. And uh, we'll put those links on our website. So if you have questions or topics you want to uh, you want us to cover, let us know. Um, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Okay, a little bonus content. We're bringing in the real experts. Uh, the top two students in the Angle Homeschool Academy are here with us today, Ainsley and Charlotte. Ainsley, how do you like uh, the Homeschool Academy? How's it treating you? Um, It's okay, but it could be better. How could it be better? Well, there could be more free time and less work, and it could be shorter hours. <laughs> more free time, less work, and shorter. Okay, I'll take those under advisement. Charlotte, what do you think of the Angle Homeschooling Program? I really like it because we get to do a lot of fun things. How would you like to make it better? Um, I would like to spend more time outside. Really? More time outside? Well, that is great advice. I think the three of us are going to do that now. We live in a beautiful place, Missoula. Uh, let's go get outside. I encourage all of you to do the same. Any parting words of wisdom, girls, for the audience? Stay healthy. Stay healthy and go play with your cat. Anyway, all the best, peeps. See you later. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors, these guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, executive producer Stefan Borsum, and interns Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.